Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. You can follow me on Twitter at OnStrategy1. That's the number one, OnStrategy1. Or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. This episode is from the 12-episode series I produced for Wark. They are all Wark Awards for Effectiveness winners, and all are winners from 2021. If you're interested in submitting for the 2022 awards, they are now open for entries. Deadline is March 2nd, 2022. That's just actually four weeks away, roughly. And good news is they're easy to enter and there is no entry fee. They are actually global awards. So no matter where you are, you can enter. And you can learn more, if you'd like, at wark.com backslash awards backslash effectiveness. That's wark, W-A-R-C, wark.com backslash awards backslash effectiveness. So here's the episode about Aldi's supermarkets in the UK titled Shame to Pride. Enjoy. Today, we focus on the Shame to Pride case for Aldi supermarkets in the UK. It was awarded a Grand Prix and a uh, Silver Award for sustained growth. Uh, For those who are familiar with Aldi, it's a German discount supermarket. It's got an international presence in many countries around the world. But this case study focuses on their growth in the UK market. In, In 2010, Aldi had already been in the UK for close to 20 years, but its market share was extremely low. It was around 2%. Uh, People perceived it as a low-quality, limited-range store. Uh, The brand ran a 10-year multi-channel campaign to improve perceptions, grow share, and become ultimately a top-five grocery retailer. The work throughout or across the 10-year period uh, tackled negative consumer perceptions at each stage, and it had four very distinct campaigns, each one addressing a different strategic issue. The unlock, the entire strategic unlock, happened sort of early in the process and was pretty amazing. Uh, The team actually discovered a way to reframe their perceived weakness and turn it into a strength. And uh, that unlock is what would fuel their growth for close to 10 years. And it was very simple and it was very brilliant. It was, it's not that we're cheap, it's that others are expensive. So here is Jamie Pete, Group Head of Retail Strategy at McCann World Group, and Laura McKinley, Managing Partner at McCann Manchester. So welcome, uh, Laura and Jamie. It's terrific to be able to do this case. And, and one of the things that's, that's, um, that's so great about the case here is that this is, this is a Grand Prix Award winner for sustained growth. So this is really a case that goes across roughly nine to 10 years. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. So I think I think the best thing to start off with maybe um, maybe Jamie I'll give you this one but can can you can you describe briefly in thirty seconds or less what this case uh, for Aldi is a great example of? Sure. So I think it's a great example of how you can take what were perceived as absolute negatives and with a bit of upstream thinking you can actually change the problem from one that is difficult for you to solve into a problem that you can solve and make those negatives actually into positives and assets. And it's also about being consistent in in, in your thinking through that long period of time, that that, that 10 years, and keeping a kind of challenger mindset as, as you go along. So with, when you when you look at this, Laura, and we look at Aldi in the UK, this is a, this is a German brand that had already been in the UK for uh, roughly twenty years. Uh, 
So at the start of this case, which which in essence, for for the sake of this discussion, begins in 2010 and will go to 2019 or so, uh, can you give us a sense of where where the brand stood at the beginning of the journey in 2010 in terms of uh, in terms of its footprint in the UK in terms of its reputation? Yeah, absolutely. So um, essentially, as you say, Aldi had been in the market for a number of years, but it was very, um, it was not widespread across the nation, essentially. Across the UK, it was sort of quite Midlands focused and a little bit in the north as well. Um, And quite often the stores and the store estate was in quite uh, places where they were relatively down market. They were relatively um, sort of... um, areas that weren't that affluent I think the other thing is was that we were we hadn't grown essentially in those 20 years so the market share had very much stayed a similar way Um, and I think it was sort of felt to be almost like a place that you had to shop at rather than what you wanted to shop at. And what do you mean by that? So I think it was more felt from the actual um, UK customer that Aldi was somewhere where you could only shop at if you couldn't afford to shop anywhere else. And I think that was one of the key issues and barriers that we had to overcome as we started on this journey. So my understanding is that when we started in 2010, that market share, after 20 years in the UK, market share was at 2%. And and I'm just wondering... um, they also had, in terms of an offering, they had what they described as sort of a limited range. What does limited range mean? Well, I think the perception at the time was that limited range was, um, you know, it didn't have everything you needed. Um, it's just tins, ambient products. Whereas actually what limited range meant, which was one of the misconceptions that we really wanted to tackle on this on this journey, was actually that it, they did have a limited range, but rather than having 20 types of ketchup that you could choose from a, a, a normal supermarket, they had one type of ketchup, but it was a brilliant ketchup. They, you know, the, the quality um, was, you know, excellent. Did they have known brands or was it mostly sort of like brands or store brands? Yeah, so household brands was a, was a big area for us. So the actual household brands um, back when we started this journey in um, 2010 was um, household brands were very, very popular in the UK. But I think what we tried to do, because we, you know, Aldi didn't have those household brands and didn't stock those, was we actually had brands which were either, you know, had parity to the household brands or were even better than the household brands, especially when you compared it on price. So that was one of the key areas that we sort of really uncovered and wanted to tackle um, in our, through our communications. So anything you'd add, Jamie, to this, uh, this the issue of reputation back in 2010? Well, I think this. It, I always remember there was a um, it was a kind of popular mythology at the time was that it, you know a, a playground insult from one for, you know from one kid to another was your mum stops shops at Aldi. So your mum shops at Aldi was a playground insult, and I, I kind of think in a nutshell it doesn't really get much worse than that. No, it uh, doesn't. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but the, but the interesting thing, as Laura said, was that it was actually very different from the reality that Aldi didn't stock the, the famous brands, the Heinz, the the you know the Campbells, 
the uh, the Purcells, the Aerials, all the famous brands that people know, the Kellogg's, but the actual quality of the products was 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 very high. And because Aldi's discount, uh, the, the, disc, the price discount they were offering to those brands was significant, people found it hard to believe that they really were as good as. Laura, when you, um, I'm, I don't know, Laura, were you working on the business back in 2010? Yes, I was. And, so, and uh, also with you, Jamie? Yes, indeed. We're, right, we're, cool. we're lifers, aren't we, Laura? <laughs> I love it. So what's the, what's the ask? I mean, generally when there's this goal to uh, shake yourself out of niche positions, there's either like a new CEO that comes in or there's an acquisition or there's some motivation for, uh, for a major turnaround or to turn results around. In this case, was there – and what was the client ask back in 2010, uh, Laura? Um, so I think the main thing that they had re- Aldi had realised at this point is that historically, obviously being a German company, they'd sort of rolled out to several different countries by that point, um, and you know some had had a very very similar rollout strategy. I think what they'd found, and I think this was brought up on the paper, was actually you know. Aldi in the UK was stagnating and the rollout strategy that had worked for other countries wasn't working um, within the UK and I think there was an understanding that they had to think differently and act differently within the UK um, and really sort of um, tap into the UK consumer and sort of really understand them and also give them sort of marketing and communications that really sort of brought them to life and sort of really showed that we were, um, you know, a, a supermarket essentially for the British people. As Laura said, they, their growth had started to slow and stagnate, if you like. And actually, what really brought it to mind was that at, when we were in the sort of recession, you know, so the, t- the 2008 global recession, which started with, uh, with all the banks and so forth and spiralled all around the world, um, and we had quite a lot of austerity in Britain. You'd think that this was a time when you know a fair wind would blow for Aldi, being a discounter. But in fact, um, they, they saw the, the opposite. They they saw that their their growth uh, you know slowed even more. And as Laura said, um, you know, understanding the the customer in that was was key. But what we found was that in in times of kind of um, challenge like that, people don't want to risk anything so if you have a very limited budget of of to spend on your shopping your grocery for the week if you risk it in somewhere like Aldi which doesn't have a great so has cheap prices but doesn't have a great reputation and doesn't have the brands that you are familiar with that is a big risk and so this point about understanding, trying to get into the minds of the British people was, was key and key to understanding how they, how they kind of came to the decisions that they made about where they shopped and how they judged the quality of the products that they bought. Were all of the brands um, at Aldi, were they a store brand or were they each individually sort of lesser known brands? They were at Aldi products um, that that essentially Aldi had given brand names to, but they were very much um, Aldi products rather than you know smaller brands that were also sold elsewhere. 
what Aldi have always tried to do is they've always taken the market leader and then tried to make their product, their Aldi product, as good as or better than that market leader. So they go through, you know, huge amounts of product testing, uh, quality testing to, to get to that point. So let's talk about what, what I kind of see as this sort of central strategic unlock that comes out of the what seems to be what my understanding is the early planning work. When you kind of begin to look back at what I'd sort of label as the origin story and um, what you discovered from uh, Carl Albrecht, I think the co-founder, that, that sort of served as sort of the guiding principle and that really did serve as the unlock for the entire first year or two's campaign. Can, can you talk about that, uh, Jamie, and, and what, um, what impact that had on the entire context in which this brand could be viewed? Sure, sure. So, um, so as you say, uh, Carl and Theo, sadly, both no longer, both no longer with us. They were the two brothers that really um, grew the Aldi brand. We found this lovely quote from Carl, where he used to say, um, "You know, we, we do, when we when we have a product, we don't we don't we don't see how much we can charge. We basically ask how little we can sell it for." So the the whole Aldi model is about eliminating unnecessary cost, so that you can charge as little as possible for the product and still fulfill the, the margins and the needs that, that Aldi have. So we love this idea because we thought, wow, that, that, that sort of turns the whole thing on its head. Normally it's about, you know, what, what, what's the premium that you can command? Because it seems that even though it feels like a brilliant unlock, I would suspect that from a consumer perspective, it might be sort of looked at as sort of a convenient unlock. I've got to assume there was a, a ton of, of a skepticism, or at least you anticipated a lot of skepticism, Jamie, in terms of how you could convert that into a communications or marketing strategy. Yeah, absolutely. We were in some groups and we, I don't know, I can't even remember to day now how it came about, but either a customer said it or we said it. We, and we flipped the whole thing and said, well, what if it's, you know, it's not that we're cheap, it's that everybody else is expensive, that actually you're overpaying for all this stuff with other people. It's not that we're cheap and, and you, you, we're seen as dramatically cheap, which is affecting the quality. It's actually everything else is really expensive. And we thought, what if we could sort of subvert that? What if we could actually use the weight of those kind of communications and the big retailers against them in this kind of lovably disruptive way? and show people that there are choices and actually the power is in the hands of the customer act i think maintaining a sense of fun and sort of entertainment in what we were doing which was pretty absent from a lot of the big supermarket advertising at the time i would say and, th- yeah. and so that that leads me to the the first um, phase of the campaign there were there were so and in the way that you've written it here, there were sort of four phases to it. And so the first phase, the way you framed it is this idea of overcoming stigma. How did you get to this first campaign that you labeled as like, like brands campaign? Can you tell us what that is? Because I'm going to try and drop a couple of the spots into the audio track here. Can you explain what the strategic intent was, what the concept was? Sure. So, so, so it really came about from this right from the very start. That idea of you know, it's not that we're cheap; that everyone else is expensive. That I think prior to that, 
we'd always tried to justify what we are. And, you know, we're, 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 we're great. We're as good as brands. You don't need brands. You don't need brands. We, you know, we don't, we don't sell brands because you don't need brands. And, of course, the problem was all of the people that we were trying to persuade and, and trying to engage bought brands. But for what I was saying before, they trusted brands. They liked brands. Brands were what they knew, you know. So we were actually fighting them. Um, we were trying to fight something that was very ingrained. So the line was born, which was Aldi, like brands, but cheaper, or like brands, only cheaper. So it was such a simple thing, but it suddenly, we, we, we talk about it being, we, we did, we, we, Laura and I talk about it, we did a jujitsu move on everybody. Suddenly, we used the weight there. We used everything that was positive about them against them. And actually, and Laura can tell you more about this because she was absolutely involved deeply in all of the production of these ads. What we had to do was we 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 took um, the tops. You know, say let's say for for, for the sake of interest, tw- twenty SKUs, twenty products, all the things I talked about: ketchup, mayonnaise, baked beans washing powder, washing up liquid, chocolate, et cetera, et cetera. And we hall tested them against the leading brand. So we did a, 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 a market research test that was totally legitimate. And what we found was that the Aldi products either scored as well as the, um, the leading brand in terms of being liked by customers, or it scored, like Laura told you, within a tolerance of, I think, was, I think 85 or 90%. And therefore, we could say, look, our product is like is liked as much as the brand, but in many cases, it was half the price. And then we found a, a creative way of uh, expressing it where we had all of these executions where I, I used to call them um, a sort of a thousand little plays about Britain. So there were these little... Uh, they always had this same uh, format of two people saying, I like this and I like that. And then we showed the price difference between them. And then they usually told you something funny about themselves, something quirky. So it's like a quirky little thing, a little 20-second ad. We street cast them, and we made over 100 of them. They were hugely, hugely successful. I buy this tea for my husband. He likes tea. He also likes this one. I don't like tea. I like gin. I like this champagne. And I like this champagne. But I don't like these tight underpants. In doing this show, I hear many times when I ask questions of clients, the clients are unwilling I think there's like this code of conduct that that they're un, that they're unwilling to reference or discuss their competitors at all. It's it's kind of it's always surprises me. So I'm yeah. curious, um, what was the Aldi reaction to actually not calling out by reference, but by visually showing their competitor on the screen? Was that something they were a little uncomfortable with in this sort of A B testing? Not testing. It was in the spots. Uh, yeah, well, to be honest, because we used household brands, they weren't, and rather than, you know, um, you know, a Tesco-owned label product, etc., 
when you say household brands, you mean like personal? Uh, like personal uh, and Heinz. So gotcha. um, because they weren't sort of test brands or Sainsbury's brands, to be honest, whilst obviously they're, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're really great products. We didn't see them as key competitors at the time. So we were quite comfortable in, um, in showing those products on the commercials. When you run the like brands campaign, um, does that have a certain shelf life where you then feel that you've achieved a level of success against the myth that you're trying to shift or the stigma you're trying to shake uh, that then leads you to feel that you can move on to the next campaign, which was swap well, and save? To be honest, we didn't we didn't move on. So I think Light Brands was, you know, hugely successful pretty much from the off. Um and it, you know, it's absolutely amazing in terms of the rea- reaction, not just from, you know, the public sort of sentiment, but also obviously the brand metrics as well. Um, but I think where we got came to with Swap and Save was actually, um, whilst Light Brands was absolutely brilliant at sort of putting a spotlight on a single product comparison and pulling out that that um, quality parity, but also the uh, price differential. What we needed to add to the armory, essentially, um, was how people could also swap their full shop to Aldi. So not just one product, but they could swap the full shop and reassure in that range that Aldi had everything that they needed. And so actually Swap and Save then came in as a phase two, but actually got added in alongside um, like Brands Campaign and ran for quite a time with both of them concurrently. We are the Melvins from County Leitrim. We're doing the swap and save with Andy. We try and work out at least three times a week. I always like to win, you know. I like to beat man in the gym. Is that all you got? It ticks all the boxes. I can get absolutely everything I need, all under one roof. We're definitely going to try and eat healthier this year. That's not going to happen. The boys and their meat. If there's no meat, it's not dinner. It's not a meal. The results are in. Over four weeks, we saved 479 euros. <laughs> Probably one of the easiest ways of saving money ever. So when you look at like brands and swap and save, were they running over the first two years? I'm just trying to get a sense just for the listener to kind of get a sense of where we might be tracking as we go from 2010 to 2019. Um, Yeah. So I think like brands was running throughout the period um, that we're talking about today. I think swap and save was brought in what 18 months, two years later, Jamie. Is that about right? Yeah, I think I think like brands actually started in 2011. Is that right, Laura? I think it was 2011. Yeah, February 2011. And I think Swap and Save launched in the middle of 2012. Uh, yeah, 2012. So they 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 started together, but they 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 like brands were still very much going strong, as Laura said. And actually, when they when they came in together, they were hugely complementary. Because you had, as as Laura said, this this campaign which addressed the stigma and the parity of the quality, but also built a huge amount of love and liking for the Aldi brand because they were very funny. I mean, how, how many did, did you make, Laura? In the end, we made like over a hundred, I think. Yeah, uh, over a hundred, and then obviously it was then taken worldwide. So, you know, there's been American ones created, Australian ones created, um, yeah. obviously Ireland as well. So it's really sort of there's been lots of different versions using sort of every single walk of life i think um over the years so what what did you see um uh, jamie when you look at at sort of brand metrics or progress made if we're in sort of the middle of 2012 or the end of 2012 you, you can pick the 
time frame. What are you seeing in terms of shifts in brand metrics after roughly two years of a highly loved, liked brands campaign? Yeah, I mean, I mean, what, what what we started to see was huge shift. The, the big, the biggest thing that we saw was huge shifts in perceptions of quality. So, the, the, so quality of individual products, but then quality uh, of uh, Aldi and this idea of you know a store for me. So, we, the two of the things that we always look at is sort of, you know, this idea of, uh, is it somewhere that I would shop? Is it a store for me, which is a kind of measure, I suppose, of a affinity to the brand? And then also that Aldi can, can sort of meet my needs. And this together, they're the ones that drove huge growth. I mean, I think at one point we were, I, I averaged out at around 30%, I think, our biggest year. But I think one month we recorded 45% growth in a month as recorded by Kantar, which is incredible. I mean, we often describe it, Laura, as it was like being on a roller coaster because it just suddenly started to grow so fast. It was like somebody lit, you know, lit the blue touch paper, as they say, on the, on the firework. But for a 45% growth in, in what specifically? Well, that would have been, oh, in token sales. So, so year on year sales, wow, good God, it was 45% month. And the year average, I think the fact, the biggest year we had, was that I think it averaged 30% growth. And bear in mind, the market was growing at about 3.5%. So it was growing at 10 times the size of the market, um, the overall market. Now, were, you, course, were you finding that? Was, was that basket size or was it, was it um, bringing in it, all new customers? Well, what we found was that we, we'd, we'd, we'd done some work with Cantar uh, as well at the start of this process. And we developed this thing which we call the loyalty ladder, which was just really splitting out how um, percentage of uh, people's um, grocery budget that they were spending in Aldi. So what we, what we found was what we hugely over-indexed in 2010 with people who were only coming in maybe once every six months and buying one or two products. So what, what that really said to us was, let's try and concentrate on getting those people up the loyalty ladder, trying to get them to come back more often, and trying to get them more things when they do. So part of the the thinking behind like brands and the sort of individual focus on products was to do that, was to get people to think about these other things that you could buy in Aldi. And then the move to um, swap and save was then to accelerate that that process as well. What we found was, as a result, we also gained penetration. So we started to gain new shoppers as well. So we started off really trying to grow people's basket sizes and frequency of visit. But what we found was we also then started to attract a whole bunch of new shoppers into Aldi as well. At the start of the campaign, we were looking at Aldi with 2% market share. Now, the next data point I have in front of me is 2017. Uh, you're, you're coming out of a major initiative around the uh, the Olympics in 2016. And in 2017, you have a market share of 6.2%, from 2% to 6.2% over that six to seven year period. So so my my question, Laura, is when you're when you're coming out of swap and save and like brands, and as you said earlier, like brands campaign is constantly running throughout the years because it's it's yeah. it's got it's like the Geico campaign here in the U, the US where it, it can be freshened and it can be engaging and fun. And, and it's got so many places that it can play that it doesn't ever feels old. So I, I'm curious, where do you stand going into 
the sort of 2016 timeframe. The next issue that we came across, which came up in a lot of focus groups that we did, was people really liked Aldi by this stage. Um, you know, I think the the comment that Jamie made earlier about the insults about your mum shops at Aldi, they were, they were very much um, going by that point. And actually, with the help of light brands and our tone of voice, I think sort of a, quite a cool brand was kind of forming um, that was very much talked about in terms of its, you know, um, creative executions, etc. Um, but where where we still had an issue was on our fresh produce. Um, most um, most pre prevalent of that was regarding our fruit and veg and meat, and the perception that we were still a German discounter, and actually our therefore our meat was from you know from abroad somewhere rather than actually one supporting british farmers but you know actually great quality british meat and fruit and veg so that campaign was was essentially developed to try and get over that final hurdle of people swapping their their big shop um hook line, hook line and sinker um, over to aldi we believe in the great british farmer we were the first supermarket to sign up to the National Farmers Union Fruit and Veg Pledge. We believe in our customers. That's why we stop at nothing to provide you with award-winning produce at a great price. What I love about it, uh, Jamie, is that uh, all the while you have, as I mentioned earlier, like brands is running, but then you also start to sort of spoof other brands in the category at key parts of the year. Can, so can you tell us what was behind sort of spoofing John Lewis's Man of the Moon and later sure. uh, Game yeah, of Thrones? Sure. Yeah, sure. So so, so what we really wanted to do was, um, I think it's, it, I think, as Laura said, as we were, as we kind of moved from this brand that people didn't, did, you know, were almost it was a, it was a journey from shame to pride, really. As we as we we came away from a brand that people were slightly ashamed about shopping at to one people felt more proud of, we wanted to sort of make sure that we were always part of the cultural conversation, and we knew that with sort of you know like brands we had. Uh, I, I, we developed this kind of lovable, disrupt, this lovable, disruptive tone of voice. And we thought, you know, if we can find um, cultural moments uh, or throughout the year that are so central to the sort of British psyche, but we can do a bit of sort of lovable disruption on them quickly, we can actually, that, that will actually enhance our, our, our standing in, in terms of what we want to do with the brand. So, for instance, in the, the John Lewis one, we uh, when they ran that campaign uh, at Christmas and it was the the, the Man in the Moon campaign, we actually uh, Aldi have these non every week they they run these things called special buys, which are non grocery items that they sell, and they had a telescope uh, running, uh, <laughs> and we knew there was a telescope featured in the uh, John Lewis commercial, so we filmed that that version in, and Laura will tell me I think it was about eleven days. Laura, was it that you turned that round? Yeah, I think, like yeah I think it's 10, 11 days. I like this one, and I like this one. But I'm over the moon with this one. It was, I mean, we, 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 what we got a huge amount of earned media coverage 
from that. And in fact, that's something that we've taken forward, isn't it, Laura? We always try to look for agile moments that we can use like that. We, we've always said we want to try and make, even when we're sort of being slightly, uh, you know, um, make, you know, we want to make a point against a competitor, we want them to laugh with us. And that's, I think, the art of lovable disruption. We don't want people to scowl. So then uh, the, the last phase that you, that you outlined in the paper was what you described as uh, Kevin the Carrot, the campaign. And so was Kevin another sort of a seasonal um, uh, opportunity or was it, was it based around vegetable, which is what it sort of implies? Um, well, uh, well, I mean, Kevin was actually, so Kevin was born of um, a, a real strategic um, issue, which was, you know, this idea was, is Aldi, so it's the, the fourth phase really of this, which is, is Aldi good enough for you to give to other people? So, you know, at times when you are most on show, and uh, certainly in the, I'm, in the UK, Christmas is a key time when people come around to your house, you know, people host Christmas. Are Aldi products and is Aldi produce good enough? And in fact, when we looked at the Aldi's market share performance over the years, we always see what we used to call a trade-out at Christmas. So at Christmas in the UK, everybody becomes more, uh, increases their repertoire of stores. People shop much, much more widely. And in fact, we knew that Aldi shoppers actually over-index in sort of Christmasiness. They really like Christmas. The problem was they didn't spend them, their money in Aldi. So they were trading out of Aldi to other stores to treat themselves. So we, we had to think about how do we find a way of getting um, shoppers to stay in Aldi and not lose market share, so make Aldi good enough. And the, the idea of Kevin was born of, of two things, really. One was we have a tradition in the UK of um, Christmas Eve, you, uh, if you've got kids in particular, you leave a carrot out for Rudolph the rain, Red, Red Nose Reindeer and a mince pie and a glass of sherry or something for Father Christmas. And what usually happens, of course, it's your, your dad or your mum. And then in the morning, it's half eaten. You say, oh, Father Christmas has been. So Kevin... You can't, you can't say that in public. Come on, you just <laughs> broke in the heart. Yeah, so, so I'm told. So I'm told. <laughs> Don't let your <laughs> children listen to this show, people. <laughs> but then the other thing was that it was also the time when John Lewis, I think that year, did their penguin. And yeah. they were selling these you know, animatronic penguin toys in, in John Lewis for like, I think... 90 pounds or something and we just thought the, the you know a really funny disruptive thing to do would be to have like a 5p carrot as our sort of christmas <laughs> mascot and, and i think originally laura we were, gonna, we were gonna wrap original original you know just carrots in 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 sort of like christmas paper and sell them but sort of Kevin yeah well we good. actually we ended up doing um on a later year doing the packaging of carrots with the kevin kevin packaging so you were actually buying <laughs> buying kevin's so this was an opportunity where the the brand's reputation had been built as being a brand for me but i wasn't necessarily comfortable as a being something that i gift or, or provide or bring to somebody else's home I, I think as well i mean we just sort of launched you know a new strap line at the time which was everyday amazing and what's more everyday than a than a carrot at christmas time and what's more amazing to than actually bringing it to life and you know giving this 
giving this um, character a real story. John Lewis were doing a brilliant job with regards to, to Christmas commercials, and it kind of made made it a bit of um, a bit like the um, Super Bowl um, of UK for in terms of commercials. But quite a lot of the other grocery retailers out there um, weren't. So it was very, you know, again, quite rational, um, quite silly, and we really wanted to sort of take on that sort of John Lewis factor and create something that was really engaging and told a story. And you know, we really entertain all ages so not just children but also adults with sort of our tone of voice and our charm um, and really sort of engage them whilst at the same time showing them you know the range of the you know Christmas products that they don't actually have to um, compromise by shopping Aldi at Christmas. Carrot was walking through falling snowflakes a winter wonderland of traditional cakes was he in heaven or was he just dreaming of fine Christmas fare and glue-vine mugs steaming. Such tempting delights, too sweet to forego. Could Carrot resist? His snow angel, you know. Carrot looked smart in his little bow tie. Champagne was flowing with corks popping high. Droplets of water ran down a glass hill, where sparkling Prosecco was starting to chill. Chardonnay bubbled with plenty of cheer as Carrot crash-landed near the fireplace. Oh, dear. Uh, Jamie, uh, last question will be to you. Can you summarize the, uh, the success in terms of progress against KPIs and share of market for the listener as we wrap up? Yeah, sure. So I think we went, I mean, we Aldi was, I say, this, 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 limited range discounter where uh, for poor people um, that had less than um, just less than 2% share in 2010 to now, I mean, now we are more than 8% by value of the UK grocery market. And bear in mind, every percentage point uh, of every percentage point of grocery share you put on the UK is roughly a billion pounds, a bit more, can be a bit more than that, actually. Penetration of Aldi is now uh, more than half. Uh, I think it's getting close to 60% now in, uh, annually. So well well over more than half the UK population shop in an Aldi in a year, where it was, it was what, what uh, 30% or something when we started this. Um, and I think currently Aldi has the biggest basket size of any of the retailers in, in, in the market. So people are doing larger shops in Aldi all of the time. Um, so I think, um, you know, against all of the metrics that we set ourselves 10, 10 years ago, we, we, we really um, met them and exceeded them. And in fact, you know, we had this 10-year goal to get to be uh, number five. And actually we did it in, in, I think we did it in that 2017. We did, so we did it uh, actually a couple of years earlier than that. So uh, yeah, pretty good performance all around for everybody. Congratulations um, uh, on the Grand Prix for Sustained Growth from the Warwick um, Marketing Effectiveness Awards. It's Jamie Pete, Global Head of Retail Strategy at McCann World Group, and Laura McKinley, a Managing Partner at McCann in Manchester. And if anybody is interested in seeing the complete case study, um, uh, if you're a member of Warwick, you can get access to that at, uh, I think it's Warwick.com. So thank you both for your time. We really appreciate it and uh, brilliant work. Thank, Thank you. you. And we'll see everybody on the next Behind the Winning Idea episode. <laughs>